0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to bring you stories about music, sports, history, work, marriage, and every sphere of American life. We tell you good stories, redeeming stories, uplifting stories, and tough stories, too. And today, we hear from Jeff Katz. He's a radio host in Richmond, Virginia, and he's also a columnist for the Boston Herald. And here, he shares his deeply personal story about his teenage daughter, Julia, who has what doctors call global developmental delays and disabilities. And all of that means is that she functions physically and mentally at the level of a toddler. Here's Jeff reading a note that he wrote to his daughter.
1: Dear Julia, I'm writing you this note on March the 7th, 2018. Today is the day that you turn 15 years old. It's an interesting day for me and for mom, but it's another day for you. You're not like other kids, my sweet. You've never made a big deal of your birthday. You've never asked us for any type of a special gift. Not for your birthday, not for Hanukkah, not for Christmas. You've treated each and every day in the same way. Mom will wake you up and you'll have a smile on your face when you see her. She'll play some of your music and you'll smile even more. You may laugh or giggle or squeal, but there will not be any words. You won't complain about having to go to school. You won't be happy to hear that it is a snow day. You won't celebrate the fact that today is 15 years since you were born. Most 15-year-old girls would be thinking about clothing, college, or a car. By 15, many dads have already had to warn their daughters about some dopey boy. But today, you'll watch your favorite episode of Jack's Big Music Show, enjoy your cereal, and be on the lookout for cookies wherever you can find them. Mom and I know that you will be with us as long as we're alive. But we worry about what happens after we're gone. You have two wonderful brothers, and I pray every day that we have raised them well enough to know that they will need to look after you someday. You may be our middle child, but you'll always be the baby. Even as you get older, according to the calendar, as mom told me yesterday, you are timeless. You'll always be my pipsqueak, despite the fact that the years are flying by. No, we're not exploring potential careers or making plans for your wedding. We're still hoping that we'll be able to help you move from diapers to the potty someday. You live today the same way you did when you were about 18 months old. You don't speak, and you only recognize a few words, but oh, the words that you know. Kisses and cookies. No matter how filled up you are, there's always room for a cookie or two. You don't understand when I ask you how your day was. But you become laser beam focused when you hear the crinkle of the wrapper on a package of something sweet. No matter how sweet that candy, it's still eclipsed by your genuinely sweet smile. So many people live their lives asking for things, demanding things, accumulating things. Most people never take the time to stop and savor a piece of cake or breathe deeply to appreciate a gentle breeze like you do. I hear people in this world use horrible, insulting language to describe kids like you, and I want to shake them, yell at them. Some mock disabled kiddos like you, and I feel like crying. You don't understand their words, but I do. Sometimes I really wish I did not. We never thought you would crawl, let alone walk, but you showed us. Your situation and challenges and disabilities have caused me to question my belief in God on some days and have served to strengthen it on others. You don't speak, but somehow you are able to brighten my days in ways that I never imagined. Without a single solitary word, you've made me a better man and touched countless people. Hearing you cry ties my stomach into knots, but your giggle is truly the happiest sound that I have ever heard. I know you'll never read this, nor would you understand this if I were to read it to you. So let me just say, Kisses and cookies, Jules Bagules. I tell you today what I have told you on every March the 7th since 2003. Daddy loves you more than you will ever know.
0: And thank you for that reading, Jeff. You've made me a better man, he wrote. Your giggle is the happiest sound I've ever heard. On Julia's Unexpectedly Learning How to Walk, Jeff told the Boston Herald that, quote, it was one of the proudest days of my life, one of the happiest days of my life. But I also have to tell you, it's a terrifying situation because Julia is like a toddler. She has no real understanding of, oh, the stove is hot, or I could fall here or trip you there. We're thrilled that she's trying to explore on her own a little bit, and we're terrified at the same time. And this is true for all of us parents, but even more so for Jeff and his bride. Jeff has said that it's tough to realize that he'll never get to embarrass Julia by dancing with her at her wedding. But, quote, she's the best thing that's ever happened to me, end quote. And last but not least, he said these words quote, She's never spoken a word. She's never said a word to anybody. But she's touched more people in her 15 years on this earth than I ever have. Her joy is pure. To me, she's like the face of God. She's the essence of good, and she shares her joy with everybody. And to everyone out there who's in a similar situation, we share these thoughts. Share them to us. Share them with us. Here at ouramericannetwork.org, that's ouramericannetwork.org. Jeff Katz's story, his daughter Julia's, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories that touch on every part of American life. One theme that cuts across many of our stories is the theme of innovation. And today we're joined by Tim Harford, author of a great book titled 50 Inventions That Shaped the Modern Economy. We're going to dig into just a few more of those inventions. And by the way, we've done a bunch of segments with Tim. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and catch them all. That's our ouramericannetwork.org. And Tim, today, let's start with something near and dear to us here in Mississippi, and that's air conditioning. My dad used to tell me that everyone he knew went to the movie theaters for one reason only. It wasn't whether the movie was any good or the cartoons. There was air conditioning. Talk about yeah,
2: this is why we have summer blockbusters. Uh, absolutely, it's just a place to go where it's cool and in the, in the heat of the sun. So, air conditioning is is a fascinating invention. There's a um, uh, wonderful writer, Stephen Johnson, who argued that air conditioning elected Ronald Reagan. And you think, well, how does how does that work? <laughs> well, air conditioning changed the demographics of the United States. It enabled many more people to live comfortably in Texas, in Florida, all those people retiring to Florida and then starting to vote Republican. So it's changing the political landscape of the United States. And in fact, it's, it's changing the, um, the shape of the world, really, for, for similar reasons. So you, you think about these uh, amazing new cities that are have in the last few decades been growing: uh, Singapore, Hong Kong, Shanghai, uh, it, it, Dubai. Uh, you go to these places; there is no way you can build a glass-walled skyscraper in Singapore or Dubai without air conditioning. It's completely impossible. There's no way that technology. Uh, will work without air conditioning. So it makes possible skyscrapers in warm climates. It makes a lot of things possible that, that we take for granted.
0: Indeed. The other thing, it's a companion almost to air conditioning, not the same, but I'm skipping ahead to chapter 22, and it's the elevator. I want to read something quickly. We don't tend to think of elevators as mass transportation systems, but they are. They move hundreds of millions of people every day, and China alone is installing 700,000 elevators a year. How did elevators change the world?
2: Well, let me just justify that statement about mass transit. Just imagine a, a building such as the, the Sears Tower in Chicago. I guess we call it the Willis Tower now, don't we? Or the Empire State Building in New York. Um, think about all those floors. These are roughly 80, 100 stories. Think of all those stories, and now let's just chop them into single-story or two-story buildings, and we and distribute those buildings all over a big office park, sort of out-of-town office park. And think of all the um, all the car parks you need to have around them, and think of the enormous amount of space that that office park would take up. Now, because they're all stacked on top of each other. Um, You don't need the car parking. You don't need people driving their automobiles uh, to get to this space. You just go in on the ground floor, get in the elevator, and you can be taken to any floor in the building. So that's why I say it's a mass transit system. I think that's an absolutely inaccurate description. Uh, How did it shape the world? Well, it made the skyscraper possible. There is really no way you could realistically have a building more than – and at 10 stories unless you have a functioning elevator or actually more to the point the real innovation is is the elevator brake cuz we've had elevators for hundreds and hundreds of years but nobody is going to get in an elevator uh, that's going to go any serious height unless it's safe and otis yeah that guy uh, elijah otis invented the elevator brake and he demonstrated it at one of these world's fairs uh, it was a hugely the- theatrical demonstration. He was lifted up, up, up above the crowd and standing behind him on this scaffolding. You would imagine the, 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 the drama of it. There's a guy with an executioner's axe and he raises the axe as though he's about to strike off Otis's head. And he swings the axe down and he chops the elevator rope. And everyone in the crowd screams and the elevator falls about a quarter of an inch. And then Otis yells out to everybody, all safe, gentlemen, all safe. He's demonstrated that he has developed a safe way to make uh, the elevator work. And they are, in fact, incredibly safe. They make skyscrapers possible. And they're really enormously efficient. So the, the people who are, who are concerned about energy efficiency and they talk about double glazing, they talk about insulation, they talk about all the ways that you can uh, reduce the fuel consumption of a building. One of the, the best ways of all is an elevator because you shift a lot of people using a counterweight, pack them all into a very dense area and you can have a, a very low environmental impact city like Manhattan very low environmental impact, and yet still generate a tremendous amount of uh, of uh, economic output, of, of income. And it's all possible because of the elevator.
0: Indeed. Let's talk about the barcode. Now, that doesn't seem too glamorous, but without the barcode, my goodness, Walmart, Home Depot, none of this stuff is possible, is it?
2: Uh, no, it, it isn't. And I, I should say on the subject of glamour, the idea of, of this book, the, the 50 inventions that that the modern economy, it's not to pick the 50 most important inventions. It, it's to try to surprise people a little bit, and to get them to look at everyday objects in, in a different way. And the barcodes, one of the, one of the great examples of that. So, um, so the barcode was um, was invented several times, really. But but the the real inventive moment, and I'm drawing a blank on the, the um, inventor's name for a second. It may come to me. And he, was, um, he was sitting at, at the beach. He was visiting his uh, grandparents. And he was thinking of the time he'd spent as a Boy Scout communicating in Morse code. And he'd been trying to figure out this problem. How do I create an automated till? And um, he dragged his fingers in a lazy circle through the sand and then he looked down and he he saw he'd created a kind of um bullseye with his fingers the ridges and the troughs and he realized he could use those ridges and troughs to uh convey a code morse code and so the original barcodes were in fact bullseyes the idea of the bullseye is well you can scan it in in any direction it doesn't make any uh, any difference it's always the same um in the end of course the modern barcode is linear uh And it took several decades to get the computers cheap enough and the lasers cheap enough to make it a a practical technology. But once it was there, well, actually, I should say before it was there, there was a huge debate in the retail industry. You had the big retailers, you had the food manufacturers, and everybody was arguing rooms full of lawyers over the barcode. And they were arguing for a good reason because they knew that the exact design of the barcode, how it was put together, who had to pay for the infrastructure. These things were going to make a big difference. They were going to advantage some retailers, they were going to disadvantage others. So there were these huge fights. Uh, and of course, the, the retailers didn't want to put the, the barcode scanners in until the food manufacturers had barcodes on their products. And the food manufacturers didn't want to bother putting barcodes on their products until the scanners existed to read them, so there was this all this kind of you go first thing. I mean, um, Miller, I think, had been printing their labels on their beer bottles using the same technology for about six, 60 or 70 years. So the idea that you're going to retool in order to print these crazy barcodes, not very attractive. But in the end, it was it was done, and as you say, it empowered Walmart and the the real big box retailers. Because it solved a problem that they had about keeping track of stock, about keeping the staff on the, the checkout, keeping them honest, they didn't put money in their own pocket, everything was scanned through. It solved a problem they had and that the, the mom-and-pop shops didn't have, because they, they knew what was on the shelves and what was running low, they weren't going to steal from themselves. So it really tilted the playing field in favor of, of, the, of the big players. And Walmart in particular, I think people underestimate how important Walmart was in integrating the American economy with the Chinese economy. They made a huge contribution there, whether you like it or not, um, to introducing these very, very cheap goods. And they couldn't have done it without the barcode.
0: And by the way, that young man was Joseph Woodland, and he was a graduate student at the Drexel Institute in Philadelphia. He was the one pondering that, that problem on a beach
2: he was indeed, and the other story about Woodland is he, he also designed a, a device to play Muzak in elevators, and his father advised him not to go down that path because he said, oh, the elevator business is dominated by the mafia. I've got no idea if this is true, but okay. that's what he was told. The elevator business is dominated by the ma- mafia. You don't want to go in there with your Muzak machine. Invent something else, and he invented the barcode.
0: And you've been listening to Tim Harford, author of 50 Inventions That Shaped the Modern Economy. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear more of this remarkable book. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. continue here on our american stories and this is a rule of law story which takes us to memphis not far from where we broadcast in oxford mississippi to a liquor store owned by doug and mary ketchum called kimbrough wine and spirits their quest to own their own business is a horror story of sorts as it was necessary for the supreme court of the united states to make a ruling as to whether or not this couple will be allowed to pursue their american dream
3: Mary and I met in Salt Lake City, Utah, shortly after uh, my wife passed away in 2009.
4: Well, uh, Doug and I had a lot of similar friends. We kind of knew about each other. I knew who he was, but we'd never really talked or been close.
3: After my wife passed away, she opened up her house for uh, our funeral memorial dinner and just got to know her then.
4: That was actually really nice for me because I met all of Doug's family So when we finally did start dating and decided we liked each other and we're going to get married, I already knew everybody and they already knew me. And so it was, there was no, you know, nobody was scared of anything.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We got married and Mary was working as a telephone technician, as a uh, network technician. She used to climb telephone poles just to give you an idea how... Uh, cool she
4: is. (laughs) (laughs) First when I would go to people's houses and I'd say you know I'm the telephone man Uh, it would be funny because you get this odd reaction from people they'd sit and look at me for a minute their brain couldn't quite put it together.
3: (laughs) We were in a position where she could take a little time off and I have a handicapped daughter that was with a previous marriage and when we got married she says I want to be here to take care of Stacy so we moved Stacy in with us. Uh, Stacy is um, has cerebral palsy. She was born in 1984, and November of 1985, she suffered an, a drowning accident in my sister's swimming pool in Arizona, and that left her with severe uh, cerebral palsy. She is completely quadriplegic. She can't talk. She can't sit up by herself. She can't walk. Um, she can't do anything by herself uh, from the first. Uh, the first year after her accident she was in a coma. It took her an entire year to come out of her coma and I used to have to walk her to sleep outside. She couldn't fall asleep if she was in the house. So every night for three years I would take her outside for a walk and walk her until she'd fall asleep and usually it took about between a half hour to an hour. Didn't matter if it was raining or snowing or what was going on. She couldn't fall asleep unless she was outside. Um, But... After she slowly came out of her coma, she used to have a a, a gastrostomy tube, a, a tube in her stomach that we had to feed her through. Um, as she slowly came out of her coma, she started. She had to relearn everything. She had to learn how to swallow, how to how to eat food, and things like that. So it was it was quite a process, and um, spent a lot of years uh, taking care of her and worrying about her. But she is um, she's an angel. She um you know it's just the uh, the light of our lives so having having somebody uh, that was willing to take that on uh, and and marry me knowing that um, I had a handicapped daughter that required so much attention and so much um, work to take care of um, that's a pretty big deal to me I you know I um, overwhelmed every day at you know, the amount of love that Mary has for her and how willing she was to take something on. I don't think that many people could do that. In my mind, that just makes her a rock star. We got married, we moved in, um, we moved Stacy in with us, and Mary became a full-time mom to a handicapped daughter.
4: She was so sweet, and I could see her just giving me the eye, are you good enough for my dad? I said to Doug later, I said, she really needs to come and live with us, because I can tell her mom's burned out, and she needs a break, and she's been taking care of her for a really long time. And I says, I don't, honestly, I don't know if I can marry you unless she comes and lives with us, because I thought that she needed a little better care, and I thought I could do that. So when she first came here, I had a little bit of a learning curve the first, I don't know, three months or so. But after that, it was really easy, and it's pretty obvious now that she should be with us. But in
3: 2015, Stacy caught a severe case of pneumonia, and um, we spent about a month and a half in the hospital, and the doctors told us that the air quality was so bad in in Salt Lake City, especially during the wintertime, that we needed to find a better environment for Stacy, um, or they didn't expect that she was gonna last more than about a year. So we started a search and started looking for um, some place to move that had cleaner air and cleaner water, um, some place that would uh, provide us with some kind of opportunity to um, own our own business and allow us to have a little more free time to spend with Stacy because we, we don't know how long she's you know going to live. So we ran across an opportunity in Memphis, Tennessee, for a, and found a liquor store that was for sale. We spent, I don't know, about six or eight months looking at it and negotiating with the previous owner. About a sales price and trying to get all of our licensing and all that kind of stuff worked out. In June of 2016, we planned to move. We we had come to Memphis. We found a house that we liked, and we had made an offer on the business. Everything looked like it was going very well. The ABC board told us that all of our information looked fine. They were going to approve us for a license at the next hearing at the end of June.
4: And we got our city license. And we
3: got our city license in that, at the same time, yeah. June comes and they called us, our attorneys called us and says, oh, the ABC board says they lost your paperwork, we're going to have to refile it, so we're going to have to push it out till the end of July. So, in the meantime, we closed on our house here and uh, moved all of our furniture and things out, thought, okay, it's just a month away, you know, we can, we can make it another month. So, we packed, you know, we had everything packed up and we moved here and end of july comes and our attorney calls us again and says uh the abc board said there's a problem and they're putting a hold on all licenses this month you're gonna have to wait till august we're great
4: i knew (laughs) something was wrong yeah we knew something was up they were stalling
3: we didn't know why so uh august comes along and they said we put a hold on licenses we're not giving you a license and not only that um we filed a lawsuit against you in court so, the issue was, and we didn't know about this at the time, but the issue was they had a rule that said you had to be a resident for two years in order to get a license. But in order to renew the license, you had to have been a resident of Tennessee for 10 years, which effectively means that you could not get a license, a liquor license, in Tennessee unless you'd been a resident for nine years. No one told us about that rule.
4: Yeah, it took us probably six months to realize why we were getting sued.
3: Yeah, we were completely in the dark, had no idea why, no idea why we were being sued. And as Mary said, uh, has said numerous times, they could have just said no.
4: (laughs) They didn't have to sue us. I thought right from the beginning, we shouldn't quit our job until we move. And when it came time to close on the house and we hadn't gotten our liquor license yet, I said, are you sure? Maybe we should postpone buying the house. And he goes, no, no, everything's going to be fine. They've already told me it's going to be great. And I said, okay. So we came, we flew out here. We signed on the house. We got we packed up our house, delivered all the stuff here. And um, we flew back home. And they said, well, we'll we're going to do it next month. So when Doug said, well, a month, I says, well, can you keep your job for another month? We'll just stay here so that we have an income. Because I just didn't want to lose that safety net. you know. I, I wanted to make sure we had some income. And he says, yeah, I'll stay here. So he stayed one more month. We stayed a month longer, actually two months longer than we thought that we were going to because they kept postponing us and he said you know we gotta go we just we gotta go so he did he came out here in August all by himself with Stacy without a van and that was before grocery stores delivered and I would talk to him on the phone sometimes and I would think oh my gosh how is he doing this
0: and when we come back we're going to continue with the story of Doug and Mary Ketchum and what a family what a father and what a lady step up and do what she did for this man's daughter it is just there we have a story by itself and when we come back what happens next you won't believe the story of doug and mary ketchum a rule of law story here on our american story Then we return to the story of Doug and Mary Ketchum here on Our American Stories, a couple who had to fight all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court just to run their family business.
3: We had uh, initially had negotiated uh, uh, an SBA loan with Wells Fargo and it was, you know, guaranteed for a certain amount of time, but because of the lawsuit, um, we lost the SBA guarantee and when we finally won in court, we had to go all the way back through um, the uh, authorization process to get a new loan. We we lost our, our good interest rate, and because uh, of all the problems that we'd had, they thought it was a greater risk. So we had to take more money out of our retirement account, and we had to double the amount of down payment that we put down on the business. Um, so that was the money that we had allocated really for operating capital and to come in and do renovations and things like that so uh, that put us in a a tight spot financially also because we no longer had that you know couple hundred thousand dollar cushion to run the business with Um, we had to put it as a down payment so that's the other reason I had to really have a job is we didn't have much leeway after that Um, we now we got the business but we've got a really limited amount of capital to run it with and we have to you know be very careful how we spend our money and how much income and overhead we have. So Mary's the one who's handled that and she has done an amazing job with it. We're not the kind of give up kind of people, We kind of people that kind of dig our heels in. So um, we dug our heels in and and, uh, went to court and it took us I think about a year we won our case and that was in federal court and at that point the state basically was required to give us a license.
4: They still didn't want to. They
3: didn't want to. We, they stalled again. They stalled, and we we uh, uh, actually went to a hearing at the ABC board where the uh, opposing attorneys got up and said, we know that the federal judge has ruled that uh, this is illegal, that they can't withhold them a license, but you can do what you want. You don't have to give them a license if you don't want to. <laughs> and <laughs> the, the uh, commissioner... Uh, ask his attorney, he says, tell me your opinion. If I don't give them a license, what's my um, liability here? And he says, well, you're breaking the law. You could go to jail. And he said, so you want me to break the law and risk going to jail by not giving them a license? And and the attorney says, that's, that's your prerogative.
4: That's exactly <laughs> so, what we think you should do. <laughs> yeah.
3: So he says, I'm not doing that. So we were granted our license. Um, they told us they would send it to us and we still never saw it. We had to get our attorney to call the state attorney general to go get the license. So there was just a lot of uh, reluctance on the part of the state to grant anybody from outside the state a license. So the Retailers Association decided they were gonna fight it, um, took us to the Supreme Court. We felt like we had to have representation. And at that point, we had an attorney call my wife. His name was Michael Bendis, and he was out of Seattle, Washington. Is with a group called the Institute for Justice. He called her and, and told her, We heard about your lawsuit and we have a vested interest in this case. They had fought a case in the Supreme Court in 2005 that they had won that was very similar based on uh, similar rulings. And they wanted to make sure that that case stayed won and wanted to know if they could represent us pro bono. And so, Mary.
4: I started crying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Well, at first she called me, and She she says, there's somebody going to call you, and he wants to take our case, and they want to represent us pro bono. And I'm like, is this a joke? Because <laughs> nobody ever calls you and say, we want to go to court, and we'll pay all the costs. But uh, the Institute for Justice was, uh, you know, we, we met with Michael Bendis. He flew from Seattle down here to meet with us to to talk to us about our case and tell us what they do and how they do it. And they were phenomenal. Um, I can't say enough about the Institute for Justice and how, how great they were and, and what they did for us. They took the case on. They had an army of uh, attorneys working on our case. We went to D.C. and met the people in the uh, in the Virginia office up there. Um, there had to be at least 100 people that were involved working on our case.
4: For That's the Supreme pretty Court. overwhelming it was to walk into a room and see all those people that were behind the scenes that helped us that we had no idea
3: yeah it was it was um overwhelming actually yeah the the supreme court case itself we were able to fly to dc and go up and sit in the supreme court and listen to the the arguments and that was also a really amazing experience
4: well we were really lucky because we got to bring stacy with us honestly for me that when we walked in there it was kind of like being in church it was very reverent and uh, there was a lot of respect. That when those judges come out, I mean, you can just see everyone in there is 100% focused on what they're saying, what's going on, trying to see the innuendos and the cues and the questions of everything. Um, it was really intense. We, we got to listen to a case before ours. When they did finally get around to talking about us, I just had this wow moment where I realized they're some of the smartest people in our country are up there talking about me and what's going on with us. And in, in that moment, I just realized what a really big deal it was. I, before that, I just knew that we were treading water, trying to you know, make, make a life for ourselves and take care of our daughter. But in that moment, and I, when I was looking at them, I was thinking, wow, this is gonna affect the whole country. This is a big deal.
3: Yeah, it, it is a big deal we had one of the attorneys sit with us and talk to us about the process and what was going on if we had questions about what the judges were asking um, you know we could we could whisper to her and, and she'd explain it to us uh, but the whole thing was was really phenomenal but sitting through the sitting through the hearing in the Supreme Court it became obvious to us or fairly obvious to us that uh, the judges were were not very happy with the way the the laws were written, and the way they were being handled in the in the state of Tennessee,
4: and that our rights were being violated,
3: and that our rights were being violated with no just cause. So they ask a lot of questions about that, and ask a lot of questions about why you know it should be legal to um, make somebody have a residency requirement when the Constitution says that everybody should be able to go to any state and and work and uh, have gainful employment without any kind of you know restrictions. And so we, you know, eventually won the Supreme Court case, which was great for us because we have invested every penny of our savings into this business and picked ourselves up, sold our home, quit our jobs, moved across the country and kind of felt like we had the rug yanked out from under us.
4: Twice a week, um, vendors come in so that we can place our orders for our liquor. And every time something new comes in, they usually bring an open bottle and say, taste this and see if you like it. So it's really fun because we get to try every new product that comes out on the market. Um, not to mention uh, over the holidays, some of those things are really nice. So these are gift ideas and, and so we, I get to drink wine and, and some scotches and bourbons that you'd never think you'd get to. You get to try all these different things and, and that's really fun. You know, honestly, if I'd had any idea how much fun this was going to be, I would have done this a really long time ago. (laughs) Well, number one, everyone who comes in the liquor store is either in a good mood or in a bad mood, and they're in a good mood when they leave. If someone had told me what was going to happen to us, when we first started doing this, I said, I would have said, no, I don't ever want to do that. That would have been too hard. It's been very, very challenging. But I have to say that now that we're on the other side of it, I'm really glad we stuck it out and we did it. Um, I tell everybody the smartest decision I ever made in my whole entire life was when I decided to marry Doug. And I just feel so lucky that when we got here, I was with him when this happened because I knew that we could get through it and we did. And I'm really, really glad the way it worked out, um, that justice was served, and I'm grateful for IJ.
0: And my goodness, what a story, and what a lady. And by the way, Doug's not bad himself. And by the way, wouldn't every guy want to hear a woman say, "Uh, the best decision I ever made in my life was when I met my husband and married him? And what a beautiful thing. What a beautiful family. And what a story. I mean, I just keep going back to that, I lost your paperwork, And by the way, no big deal. You just have to wait a month. I lost your paperwork. And in our big discussions about making government enterprises bigger, we like to bring you those stories and these stories for a reason. Because, my goodness, the callousness of government enterprises can just be, it can be heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. And luckily, there were the Institute for Justice Lawyers, IJ.org folks. They do all of their legal work pro bono. And that's free in Latin. Pro bono is free. And they're out there protecting property rights of Americans. You know, we love what the Innocence Project does, and they free people who weren't guilty. And again, that's screw-ups of the government too. Uh, But my goodness, when the government takes your property, and that's what they did here, folks. This family had moved. This family had bought a house. They had entered into what they thought was a contract. Someone said, go do this. And so they did it. And all of a sudden, some bureaucrat changed his mind and their life came crashing down. And so if you want to support a great organization in this country, the Institute for Justice is one to support. Go to IJ.org. That's IJ.org. In fact, one of their early founders was a board member of the nonprofit that runs this show. I call them the merry legal warriors of this country, protecting the most sacred right we have Besides the right to free speech and to think and associate with whoever we want. And that is our property rights. It's what makes this country hum. And take away your property, and you can take away everything from somebody. Again, Institute for Justice is IJ.org. Doug and Mary Ketchum's story, a beautiful love story. A remarkable family. But my goodness, what a story about real justice in this country. Here on Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. For more than 150 years, the story of a common man from the Smoky Mountains has captured our imaginations and inspired us to celebrate his image in song, story, and cinema. This is the story of one of America's best-known and most-recognized folk heroes. Here's Dr. Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, to tell us the real story. Of Davy Crockett.
5: One of the truly iconic figures of the American frontier is David Crockett. He was a legend in his own lifetime. Now, he certainly had tales spun about him that were hyperbolic or entirely fictional, but that was only because his real life rise from backwoodsman to congressman and his extraordinary adventures were heroic and quintessentially American. He stood as a symbol of the new American, the man of the West, and the future of the new Republic. He lived at the dawn of the age called Manifest Destiny, the time of an expanding America that is moving West. Crockett is born just 10 years after the signing of the Declaration of Independence in a log cabin in Greene County, Tennessee, on August 17th, 1786. Davy Crockett is a third generation frontiersman and becomes the fifth of John and Rebecca Crockett's nine children. Davy's father, John, is one of the famous over-mountain men who fights in the pivotal American victory at the Battle of Kings Mountain in 1780. But while he is away fighting during the American Revolution, John's parents are slaughtered by Cherokee who ally themselves with the British, take advantage of the war to raid and pillage. One of John's brothers is badly wounded in the attack and left for dead, and another is taken captive by the Cherokee and made a slave for 17 years. Now born into this rugged patriotic environment of pioneering mountain folk, Davy learns marksmanship at a young age, both for hunting and for protection against marauding Indians.
6: Here's Crockett biographer, Buddy Levy. Crockett came from a tradition of woodsmen and he would have learned from his father and his uncles how to hunt. He learned how to track. He learned how to identify sign, scat, broken twigs. He also learned rough and tumble fighting from his older
5: brothers. Here's historians, Stephen Hardin and David Eisenbach.
7: Crockett's a jokester. He's remarkably funny, and he's affable. People like him. Being about six or seven by the creek, running into another bar.
3: Well, Tennessee at the time was still the American frontier. You got wild animals, you got fights, and it was in this world where there's no kind of solid, established law that David Crockett, you know, begins the process of becoming the myth.
5: By the time Davy is 12, his father bounds him out to a perfect stranger to travel 400 miles on foot in a cattle drive to the eastern seaboard with no arrangements for his eventual return home. Three months of intensive labor pass before Davy travels alone in snow and on foot back to his mountain home, where his family runs a tavern. But Davy is in for a surprise. His parents decide he will benefit from formal schooling. He isn't thrilled with confinement in a classroom, but his father is paying for it, so Davy
8: accepts the inevitable. I went four days and had just begun to learn my letters a little when I had an unfortunate falling out with a boy much larger and older than myself, Davy Crockett.
5: Davy begins playing hooky from school, but after a week, the schoolmaster contacts John Crockett Davey now thinks he'll be whipped by both the schoolmaster and his own father.
8: My father told me he would whip me if I didn't start immediately to the school. Finding me rather too slow about starting, he gathered about a two year old hickory stick and broke after me. I put out with all my might, and soon we were both up to our top speed. But mind me, not on the schoolhouse road, for I was trying to get as far t'other way as possible. Davy Crockett, 1834. Davy doesn't stop running
5: and is soon on another cattle drive to the eastern seaboard. For the next two years, he has more adventures than most people have in a lifetime. Davy returns home just shy of his 15th birthday. Here's Crockett historians Gary Foreman
9: and Paul Hutton. David has well reached the age of puberty, and his growth is enormous. He has grown several inches, he's changed his his, uh, features and he is now a young man. He's no longer the little boy that ran away from home. When Davy got back
10: to the tavern, it was nighttime and the evening meal was being served to the herders and teamsters. He moved unannounced
8: into the tavern and sat down amidst the other men. I had been gone so long and had grown so much that the family did not at first know me. And another, and perhaps a stronger reason was, they had no thought or expectation of me, for they had all long given me up for finally lost."
9: Davy Crockett. So he got inside the tavern, sat amongst the other travelers at the same table with the family. Finally, one of his sisters looked at him Recognized his features and discovered she has just found her long lost brother David
5: For dear life is constant struggle and the family farm bankrupts the crockets in order to pay his debts Davy's father is forced to make a difficult decision.
11: Well, here's my boy. His name is David Shake his hand boy
5: Here's criminology professor Arnett Gaston and Stephen
1: Harden Davy Crockett becomes what is known as a bound boy. It's really a form of indentured service to pay off a debt. It was slightly above being a slave. This had a significant impact on Crockett.
7: We shouldn't, as modern people, judge John Crockett too harshly. The role of children in the early 19th century was vastly different than it is now.
0: Indeed, and when we come back, more of the remarkable life of David Crockett, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we last left off with Davy Crockett paying off his father's debts by becoming an indentured servant. Let's pick up from there.
5: After a year of grueling work, paying off his father's debts to Abraham Wilson and John Kennedy, Davy does something for himself. He understands he needs at least the rudiments of an education, and coincidentally, Kennedy's son runs a school. Navy strikes a deal. He works for The Sun two days a week in return for four days a week of
7: schooling for six months. That's the only education uh, Crockett ever had, but in that time, he says, I learned how to read, I learned how to write, and I learned how to cipher. With just six
5: months of formal schooling, young Crockett's real education comes from the frontier itself. It's time for you to come on there. It's a rite of passage, a tool men used to provide and protect, a symbol of independence and freedom, one Crockett grows to cherish. His skill with his rifle becomes his trademark. Crockett begins entering shooting matches and impresses all those present with his marksmanship. At 17 he and his flintlock long rifle he names Old Betsy often outshoot all the men winning a steer or hog as grand prize. He also begins hunting professionally, bringing game, especially bear and deer, to local towns and selling them for their hides and meat. But Crockett is not only driven by profit; he is also a man of charity. Here's Crockett's biographer, William Groneman. He was intensely loyal. When he was out hunting, he would always share the meat of his hunts with neighbors or people in need. His reputation begins to grow, but evidently not enough to win himself a girl. Now Davy tried to make his own way,
10: and he was consumed, as young men often are, with thoughts of finding a wife. He courted a young lady named Margaret Elder and took out a marriage license, but she jilted him at the altar and
5: broke his heart. Then at a dance in 1806, he meets the beautiful Mary Polly Finley. He courts her for several months and they fall in love. Polly's mother is initially impressed by the young man, but soon is trying to dissuade her daughter from marrying him. This David Crockett is recklessly adventurous. Polly deserves a settled man with property. It becomes a battle between Crockett and Mrs. Finley. Finally, Davy simply rides up to the Finley house with a wedding party consisting of relatives, friends, and a minister in tow and says he has come for Polly. William Finley convinces his wife to step outside and talk with Crockett. She surprises everyone by apologizing to her daughter's suitor for the way she has treated him and invites the wedding party into the Finley home. The two are married. Davy is turning 20, and Polly is 18. Crockett feels blessed. As he puts it, he has his own horse and his own rifle, and now his own wife. Says Crockett, I needed nothing more in the whole world. Crockett rents property near the Finleys and goes to work establishing a farm. Children come quickly. A son in 1807 another son in 189, and a daughter in 1812. By the time his daughter is born, the family has moved farther west twice, and Crockett becomes a land owner rather than a renter. Here's Crockett from his 1834 autobiography. I found that farming wasn't what it was cracked up to be. It was therefore more necessary that I should hunt to get along.
7: David is not only esteemed among the other hunters of the region, he's putting money in his pocket and food on the table. In 1812, war with Britain erupts again, and the
5: trans-Appalachian country is in the thick of it, not fighting British troops, but fighting their Indian allies. The Creeks are especially troublesome. The majority of them support the British and become known as the Red Sticks. A minority, the White Sticks, support the Americans. Receiving arms, trading goods, and occasionally military advisors from the British, the Red Stick Creeks begin raiding outlying American settlements. The Creek attack that caused Crockett and other Tennessee boys to volunteer for service occurs on August 30, 1813 at Fort Mims, about 40 miles north of today's Mobile, Alabama. So-called fort was not much more than a palisade of logs around the homestead of Samuel Mims. With the red-stick creeks on the warpath, American settlers and peaceful Indians crowd into the fort for protection. By late August, the number of people inside the fort reaches 500, militiamen accounting for about half. At noon, on the 30th of August, upwards of a thousand creek warriors assault the fort. And finally set it ablaze, where everyone inside is forced to flee into the open. The creatures grab small children by the ankles, and swinging them through the air, dash out their brains on logs. Men, women, and children are scalped and dismembered. Pregnant women have their bellies split open and their fetuses ripped out. Said one witness... The fearful shrieks of women and children put to death in ways as horrible as Indian barbarity could invent could be heard a half mile off. About three dozen Americans escape, some mortally wounded. Their descriptions of what the Creeks have done reverberate across the frontier. Remember Fort Mims becomes a rallying cry. The Tennessee legislature authorizes the raising of an army of militiamen. Andrew Jackson is named the Army's commander. At the time, Jackson is recovering from a severe wound suffered in a duel. Though he is too weak to get up from his bed, he accepts the appointment, saying he'll have an army on the march in nine days. He immediately issues a call for Tennesseans to volunteer for duty. Although Polly cries and begs David to stay home, he is one of the first to answer Jackson's call. Here's Crockett from his autobiography and Stephen Harden.
8: If every man waited for his wife to be willing for him to go to war, we'd all be killed in our homes.
7: These are the people who murdered his grandparents. These are the people who forced Crockett to leave a loving wife and family. Now we have David Crockett, the, the soldier, for the first time in his life.
6: When Crockett joined the militia, he was perfect to chase rogue creeks and got to observe how they move through landscape. It was something that he, in fact, emulated.
5: As the army moves southward, Crockett is put in command of a small party of men and is sent out on a scouting mission to find the Creek Indians. Among the volunteers, Davy is very popular. He is known to be honest. One man's account called David, the merriest of the merry, keeping the camp alive with his jokes and stories. During the harsh winter, David spends his own money to buy blankets for the soldiers. In just two weeks, Crockett finds them, penetrating deep into Creek country. This gives Jackson all the information he needs to attack.
9: Split the men into two columns. We'll arrive here before the sun arises. Across we'll the river at the low point here and here.
5: Yes, sir. In the early morning hours on November 3, 1813, Crockett and 900 other Tennessee militia under the immediate command of John Coffey race ahead and surround the creek village of Tallahloosahatchee. There are dozens of cabins there with more than 200 well-armed creek warriors in them. Coffey has his volunteers encircle the village and then sends a portion of his force in a faint at the center cabins. The trap works and the Red Stick Creek warriors are all killed while 84 women and children are taken prisoner. One of the children, a 10-month-old boy orphaned by the fight, is about to be killed by squaws when the troops intervene. He is carried to Andrew Jackson who takes him into his tent and coaxes him to drink a mixture of brown sugar and water. The boy becomes... Andrew Jackson, Jr. A week later at Talladega, Crockett is in even a bigger battle when a thousand Creek warriors come rushing out of the
8: woods. The warriors came yelling on and continued till they were within shot of us, and we fired and killed a considerable number of them. They broke and ran across our line where they were fired on, and so we kept them running under heavy fire until we had killed upwards of 400 of them. Davy Crockett
0: and when we come back we continue the story of Davy Crockett here on Our American Stories when we last left off with Davy Crockett and the Tennessee Militia battling against the British-backed Red Stick Creek Warriors it was in the War of 1812. Let's continue with this story.
5: The War of 1812 is over in March of 1815 after a treaty is signed recognizing a military stalemate. Crockett returns to his family and home in the backwoods of Tennessee, but his bliss is short-lived.
10: No sooner had he returned home, than Polly died. She had been fine after the birth of their third child, Margaret. But she soon took ill and passed on rapidly. Davy was devastated.
1: Death entered my humble cottage and tore from my children an affectionate and good mother and took from me a tender and loving wife.
5: Crockett forges on as a widower and a year later marries Elizabeth Patton, a widow with two small children of her own. She lost her husband in the Creek War. Crockett will father three children with her. He moves west again in 1817 to Lawrence County,
10: Tennessee. And at the same time, he began his political career. First as magistrate, later as colonel of the local militia regiment, thus the title Colonel Crockett. And soon he began to think about running for the state legislature.
5: Crockett's reputation as a frontiersman and soldier make him a standout candidate. He becomes the voice of laborers, tradesmen, pioneers and farmers, those building America into the powerhouse it's becoming. His campaign style is simple, one that involves whiskey drinking and laughable storytelling. It's hot as blazes out here. I bet y'all are thirsty. We need to wet our whistle. Here's historian David Eisenbach. I hope I get your vote. You got my vote?
1: Yes, sir. Good. David Crockett was a politician. The frontiersman
3: was part of his image-making campaign in order to get elected uh, to a population that did not want to hear from uh, the old-time politicians.
6: When Crockett's elected to the United
3: States Congress,
6: he arrives in Washington and still takes the floor of the House pretty much dressed
11: in his buckskins. In
5: 1821, he's elected to the Tennessee General Assembly and re-elected in 1823. He is elected, in a landslide, to the U.S. House of Representatives in 1826,
6: and re-elected in 1828. David Crockett looms huge in the notion of what the American frontier was. He became a symbol of possibility, of hope, that the common man could actually rise to great heights. A man with six months education ends up in the halls of Congress. It's a uniquely American story.
5: Andrew Jackson becomes president in 1829, and the year after he signs the Indian Removal Act, which Crockett, to Jackson's dismay, opposes. With Crockett running for re-election, Jackson backs his opponent, William Fitzgerald, who immediately begins running a smear campaign against Crockett's character. At a campaign stop in northwest Tennessee, Crockett confronts Fitzgerald.
12: Forget Davy Crockett. I will give you the real voice of Tennessee and Washington.
6: When Crockett and Fitzgerald arrived for one of their co-stump speeches, Crockett stood up and strode toward the stage and said, you know, if you continue with these casting aspersions, I'm going to give you a country caning. Fitzgerald leveled a pistol at Crockett's chest and said, take one more step and it'll be your last. I suggest you leave.
12: So in addition to his moral flaws, it would appear that Mr. Crockett is not quite as tough as he claims.
6: The event with William Fitzgerald and the pistol was devastating to Crockett. He had run part of his campaign on his courage and here he was publicly slinking away in front of someone. It was kind of an assault to his manhood. After a brutal campaign, Crockett loses a stunning upset in his reelection bid in 1830. When Crockett lost his bid for Congress, he sort of slung home with his tail between his legs. He was now broke, arriving to find out that his, his wife had also left him and he was living alone. It was a very low, low point in his life.
5: That is until a play opens on April 25th
6: 1831 in New York City. One of the things that revitalized Crockett in his career was the creation of this play called The Lion of the West, which was clearly uh, a depiction of Crockett. At the beginning, Crockett was sort of offended by this. He felt like he was being made fun of, but as it turned out, The play actually made him an international celebrity.
5: When Crockett loses his election bid for a fourth term in 1834, he starts thinking about moving to the Mexican-held territory of Texas. Pioneers looking for cheap land stream across modern-day Alabama, Mississippi, and Arkansas into a new frontier full of opportunity. By 1836, 30,000 Americans have moved to Texas. Davy Crockett is one of them. By the time the 49 year old Crockett reaches Memphis, some 30 like minded friends have joined him. The night before they cross the Mississippi, a celebration is held in his honor. Bar hopping finally takes the revelers to Neil McCool's. They hoist a whiskey filled Crockett up on a counter. He stands up, surveys the crowd, and says... You may all go to hell.
8: I'm going to Texas.
12: Here's historian Donald Frazier. The Texians were essentially the Anglo settlers in Mexican Texas. They'd started coming in in the last days of the Spanish regime and the first days of the new Mexican Republic. These guys were coming to Texas in order to make Texas into a new America.
5: Like the United States, Mexico is a new country. It has recently won independence from Spain. One of the heroes of Mexico's war against Spain is General Santana He is now elected the Mexican president. Bit by bit, the ruthless Santa Ana who promotes himself as the Napoleon of the West, seizes more power. He raises taxes, takes away freedoms. Now the angry Texians are calling for revolution. They want independence from Mexico. In response, Santa Ana sends 500 troops to confiscate weapons from the Americans. When the Texians refuse to surrender their guns, Santa Ana makes plans to retaliate. What began as a fresh start in Texas is now a call to arms.
3: Sam, I'd be happy and honored to fight for the future of the Republic of Texas.
5: Commander of the Texian Army, General Sam Houston, dispatches Crockett and his companions to a garrison where the Texian soldiers recently expelled Mexican troops, seizing control of the former Spanish mission, now a military fortress called the Alamo, located in San Antonio. They arrive at the Alamo on February 8, 1836.
0: And when we come back, we continue the story of Davy Crockett. And there aren't many like this in American history. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories. continue with the story of Davy Crockett and let's pick up where we last left off with the arrival of Davy and his fellow soldiers at the Alamo on February 8, 1836.
5: Y'all halt right there and state your business. We're volunteers from the United States here to fight for the Republic of Texas. Open the gates up. William Travis, who is in command of the Texas regulars, gets word of an advancing Mexican army. Santana advances north. Here's Crockett from his autobiography. Take note when this war is won and Texas has achieved her independence, these people are going to need a strong leader. And I intend to give them what they need. On February 22nd, the San Antonians celebrate George Washington's birthday, dancing and eating tamales and enchiladas. What Crockett and those stationed inside the walls of the Alamo, including numerous women and children, don't know is that an enraged Santa Ana and his army of nearly 2,000 soldiers will arrive
12: the following day and surround the Alamo. If you're going to teach these Texans a lesson, you need to teach them that lesson at the Alamo. So the first thing he does is try to scare them, raises a black flag of no quarter. The black flag means none of you will be spared. And he sets his guns up in strategic position to begin bombarding the Alamo.
5: Several different times during the siege, the sharp shooting of Crockett and his Tennesseans are instrumental in driving back
7: the Mexicans. Crockett is living up to his reputation what people need to understand about the Battle of the Alamo is that it is a siege and this battle lasted 13 days after one of the battles William Travis writes the
11: Honorable David Crockett was seen at all points animating the men to do their duty Colonel William Travis 1836
5: March 5th, 1836. Starving, sleep-deprived, and outnumbered more than 10 to 1, Davy Crockett and some 190 Texians refused to surrender and prepared a fight to the death. Here's the author of Lone Survivor, retired U.S. Navy SEAL, Marcus Luttrell.
8: Man, there's a thing that happens when death's at the door. Most people don't know when the Reaper's going to show up, right? You just kind of... Hopefully you, you, you die in peace or you die quickly. When you see the reaper standing outside the door and you know he's coming in here for us, your world just kind of lends perspective in that moment. What was important, what's not important. Who I wish I would have talked to. Man, it's a hell of a thing to to go through that.
9: Don't Musket.
5: Santa Ana is relentless, accepting heavy losses to breach the fortress. On the morning of March 6th, he launches a
12: massive assault. So he was willing to send a political message both to the United States and to the people of Mexico using the blood of his men as the ink for this message.
5: According to Susanna Dickinson, who was there throughout the siege and is one of the non-combatants crowded into the Alamo's chapel, Crockett steps into the chapel and says a prayer before joining his Tennesseans defending the South Wall. Crockett and all the Tennessee boys fire their rifles until out of ammunition and then use those rifles as clubs. Here's
9: retired U.S. Army General David Petraeus. Davy Crockett did what many American patriots have done, and that is decide to stay and fight for a cause in the face of an attacking enemy. And it speaks volumes about him uh, and about his character. After 90 minutes of furious
5: fighting, it's over. The Mexican army takes the Alamo. All of the fort's defenders are killed. As we passed through the enclosed ground in front of the church, I saw heaps of dead and dying. 182 Texans and 1,600 Mexicans were killed. I recognize Colonel Crockett lying dead and mutilated between the church and the two-story barrack building, and even remember seeing his peculiar cap lying by his side. Susanna Dickerson, Alamo Survival, 1836. There are approximately 25 different accounts of how Crockett died at the Alamo. There's no way to know, because there are no credible witnesses to it. All I can tell you is Crockett became a Texas icon by dying here. He was actually only in Texas two months before he met his death at the Alamo. From the smoking ruins of the Alamo, the nation will soon learn that Davy Crockett gave his life defending Texas in the American dream. General Sam Houston calls on Texans to avenge Crockett's death and Remember the Alamo becomes their rallying cry. Hundreds of angry Texans are drawn to the cause of independence. In a little over a month, on April 21, 1836, Sam Houston and his troops defeat Mexican forces and capture Santa Ana, gaining their independence. Nine years later, Texas will become the 28th U.S. state. Davy Crockett may well have perished at the Alamo, But the Crockett of legend has just begun. The Crockett legend easily transfers from stage to motion pictures, where he is always featured as the hero and always in a coonskin cap. On the night of December 15, 1954, America's first ever television miniseries begins airing on Wednesday night at 7.30 p.m. 40 million people Almost one-fourth of all American television sets glow with the black-and-white image of a young Texan named Fess Parker, starring as Davy Crockett on ABC.
11: And now, Walt Disney. It's characteristic of American folklore that most of our favorite legends and fables are based on the lives of real men, like Davy Crockett of Tennessee. Born on a mountaintop in tennis... And the
5: show's theme song, The Ballad of Davy Crockett, becomes number one on the music charts for months.
11: Killed him a bar when he was only three. Davy, Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier.
9: Walt Disney creates a new series called Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier its position perfectly because america is still in the post war era uh, it believes strongly in patriotism and along comes davy crockett another effort to re- rekindle the light of a hero that people have forgotten for many so many years and it's with this timing that crockett emerges again as a monumental hero in america's past and he does it in such a way that he captures the imagination of a whole television crowd that remembers him as as Coonskin Caps and uh, a host of other kitsch in pop culture. In America, the Crockett craze certainly took off
6: with the first episode. Well, everyone was really taken aback and unaware. Uh, They didn't have any marketing ready like they would today. It was just something that had to be developed after the fact. But quite soon, we had little boys and girls running around in coonskin caps and full buckskins, rifle trying to hunt bear just like Davy Crockett did, trying to talk like Fess Parker did.
10: But others made do with imagination and a good stick. And they played out the Battle of the Alamo in backyards all across America. Of course, more often than not, Davy Crockett won his last battle because historical fact was pretty irrelevant to toddlers in America. Davy Crockett has had a remarkable afterlife, growing to proportions that no one at the time of his death could have ever imagined. New Crockett's have been created, meeting the needs of new generations of Americans. And I think it's safe to say that Davy Crockett will always live in the American heart, at least so long as Americans cherish decency and freedom.
0: And great job on that, Greg. And thanks to Dr. Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen and Vigilantes. We're lucky to have him. We're honored to have him. What a professor he was for so many years Out on the West Coast, any students lucky enough to have studied under him, and Greg Hengler did, well, they'll be happy to hear his voice on our national show telling stories about this country, Cal State, Northridge, UCLA, Pepperdine. That's where Dr. Roger McGrath taught. And again, we've all had those teachers who brought history to life, and they're a blessing, and we need more of them now than ever here in this great country. This is Lee Habib, Davy Crockett's story, the story of the American frontier. Here on our American stories.
11: Fought single-handed through the Indian War till the Creeks was whipped and peace was in store. And while he was handling this risky chore, made himself a legend forevermore. Davy, Davy Crockett, the man who don't know fear. He went off to Congress and served a spell, fixing up the government and laws as well. Took over Washington, so I heard tell, and patched up the crack in the Liberty Bell. Davy, Davy Crockett, seeing his duty clear. when he come home his politicking was done why the western march had just begun so he packed his gear and his trusty gun and let out a
0: grinning to follow